and welcome back to the Driving Talk podcast powered by Icon. We've got another episode for you and as last week we've only got two hosts. Max has decided to take some time out this week. I think he's in his living room making Porsche noises, I don't know. He's, he's off doing something, uh, getting ready for the new season probably. But we've got a, a, a guest who's a very good friend of mine, Paul Harvey. You join me once again on the on the sofa after time away last week. How are we all doing, gents? Pretty good? I'm sorry, but we're probably both waiting for each other there, weren't we? Yeah, no, all good, <laughs> thanks, Rob. <laughs> all good. I'm dialing in from London from a hotel room. Uh, so I tried to somehow match your background with a bit of neon blue. But yeah, looking forward to getting into it and understanding all about Scott and his history. Absolutely. And uh, Scott Woodwish joins us, who you may have seen recently. He's He covers a lot of the BRSCC club racing going on. That's that's part of his day job there as well with his social media links with the British Racing and Sports Car Club. Uh, but you've commentated on Super GT, Brazilian touring car racing. You've, you've commentated on things all around the world. And can I kind of tell the Well, do you want to tell the viewers on a phone call you got earlier today on something you're potentially going to do this weekend? Uh, I don't know what I've announced it by then, um, but it has something to do with going to Dubai and a certain Italian mark. Um, something has happened this weekend, which came completely out of the blue. That's all I'll say for now, uh, because I, once I get the go-ahead, probably tomorrow I'll probably want to announce it on socials. But yeah, it kind of knocked me a bit blindsided. That <laughs> was uh, quite unexpected, but very positive phone call I had. So looking forward to that. But yeah, it, it, it's crazy where sometimes being a commentator takes you with, and all that sort of stuff with super gt and with brazilian stock cars all remote stuff but it's still great to get the opportunity and and then you could do that one weekend but next year trackside at brands hatch watching mazda mx5s and city cars go around for for a weekend which is quite the contrast but i wouldn't have it any other way it's it's a motorsport through and through it's the one thing i'm passionate about more than anything else in the world and it's one industry that i want to be in and i'm privileged i'm grateful that i'm in it and i don't ever want to leave hopefully thank you Fingers crossed. I'm going to assume it's Piaggio scooters or something like that. You, you know, the old Italian mopeds see, or a Vespa. See, you sported now. See, I was going to announce <laughs> that. Absolutely sported. You absolute scoundrel. Um, no, for the record, it's not Piaggio. It's something a bit more exciting than Piaggio. But um, anyone who can put two and two together and use Google will probably be able to figure out what it is. But I won't announce it just yet until on my social until I've got it confirmed, which is probably going to happen tomorrow morning. I've had the go ahead on my side, so I just need to get the go ahead on their side to thumbs up and then. It'll be out on socials. It'll probably be out on socials by now, but just for the purpose of right now, it's not official yet. So I'm going to wait until it is. Until not, I don't want to jinx it. You don't, you don't want to jinx it. Well, I'll tell you what, mate. We'll keep our fingers and toes crossed for you. Um, obviously, we we start. We're we're sort of recording this on the week beginning the 29th of January. So we've just had the Daytona 24 Hours conclude at the weekend. Paul, have you seen much of it? Didn't get to see too much. Uh, obviously, know the result, and I'm sure we'll we'll come on to that in due course. But um, it's just fantastic to start to see everything come to fruition that that series has tried to achieve with all the new manufacturers, all the new cars. Obviously, Daytona is a is a great event on a standalone basis, but also to have something so early in the calendar year for a full endurance race of that duration is a great way to kick off the motorsport year. I have to be honest, I've been slightly distracted by the red flares and the night running at the Monte Carlo rally. Um, yes. There's been some fantastic footage and socials of that, if you've seen anything. Uh, and that was, that's was that been pretty amazing as well. But yeah, what a great start to the year. 
the only thing that's gutting about the Monte Carlo rally, I, I just felt the wind go out of my sails when they announced the entry list because WRC2 is packed full of some brilliant drivers, brilliant cars. Mm. Um, Oliver Solberg is my tip for that. What a, we, we saw his driving on the RAC rally was just phenomenal. But nine cars for the top mark in WRC. Scott, well, I mean, surely it makes you feel the same. Yeah, I've, it's disappointing. It, the thing is, it's 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 a double-edged sword because for me, WRC one, it's produced, I think, arguably the fastest rally cars we've ever had, pretty much since the Group B days. And I'm a massive Group B advocate. It's one of my favourite categories mm-hmm. of all times. I'm certainly into you two gents. But the fact is that the Colhar Faxes, we've only got three manufacturers and like eight full-time drivers, if that. And mm. that's not WRC. I mean, yes, the the, the Ford, the, the the Hyundai, and the Toyota are all spectacular. They, you know, with the hybrid system and the engine they've got, they're packing five hundred horsepower, and they've got aerodynamics probably more sophisticated than they had in Group B days. Therefore, it's genuinely, the, I think, the fastest running cars we've ever had. But for what show? I mean, there's literally, as I say, six to eight full-time drivers, whereas. It's been rumoured that they're thinking about getting rid of those and instead bringing in a Rally 2 Plus category. So they're going to have the Rally mm-hmm. 2 Plus regulation, two regulations, but with a possibly some hybrid, I think, and a different sort of aero kit on top of it. So it makes the cars a bit more powerful, a bit more faster. And I think that will take us more back to the days of the late days of Group A to the early WRC car days when manufacturers could build those cars. And also as well, it makes it more accessible for customers because you don't really mm-hmm. see there's virtually no customers with Rally 1 cars, as brilliant as they are, I think I saw someone was reading the cost difference or something between them. It's like, uh, like it's, it's like a million euros for a Rally 1 car compared to maximum like two to 300,000 euros for a Rally 2 car. I mean, I think also proof is the fact that Toyota have just launched their new Rally 2 car and it debuted at the Monte Carlo Rally. There's Hyundai, there's Ford, there's Skoda still involved. Citroën still have a works team in WRC2. So in Rally 2. So that to me, and I've thought this for the while, is that whilst those Rally 1 cars are, are brilliant, it's just not working. And Rally 2, I think, is the better option, particularly with a Rally 2 Plus kit, like GT3 did going into WEC now with a GT3 Evo kit. I yeah. think that's the way WRC used to go because then the cars are a bit more relatable. They're a bit more of the shape of some of the road cars that you see out there. And you've got, you know, Hyundai, Ford, and Toyota are already there. You've got Skoda, you've got Citroen, you've got a couple of others, and the Volkswagen is still eligible. And I'm certain you could have other manufacturers come in and create cars that are easily doable to go into that class, like Renault or Peugeot or somebody else. So I think that's, for me, the way forward in WRC2. And at least then you can go forward and there's more chance for customers to get involved because it's more easy accessible because those cars are a third of the price of the Rally 1 cars. So. They're make, to sum it up, they're magnificent, but horrifically expensive. And there's no manufacturers interested. Whereas WRC2, Toyota just launched their new car. That, to me, says it all. Toyota, I think, probably see the future in that. So they're getting started now. Isn't the case with a lot of series, isn't it, where they start off and then it ends up becoming prohibitively expensive. Manufacturers and other people just say, look, you know, there's only one or two of us left. We bagged a couple of titles because... Probably in 20 years' time, no one will remember that there's eight cars in it. And then we go back to a much more affordable series and we build from there again. Uh, as you say, if manufacturers are directly going into uh, WRC2, then that's obviously, they think, the sweet spot. Customers have always been a key part of all motorsport, and particularly rallying, uh, and to be able to have those privateer entries. So, yeah, I just think 
it's a natural evolution. We've seen it in multiple series and it's now becoming so marginalised. But let's enjoy the cars in their own right. I still love rally drivers in terms of skill, uh, you know, debatable oh, as to whether or not the ultimate car control, uh, not necessarily to squeeze the fastest lap, but whether they've got the best feel and best car control is is, is very arguable from my perspective. And I think I love watching them uh, perform. But yeah, it's just just always happens, doesn't it? It becomes prohibitively expensive. People move away from the series and it either reinvents itself or, or it folds in some cases and, and, and disappears altogether. But it provided some, spe- like you say, Paul, some spectacular scenes in the night stages. The spectators with the bright red flares, honestly. Um, if you are listening or watching on our YouTube or listening via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, any, any good podcast outlets... Uh, you know, I, I really implore you, get yourself on YouTube and just type in Monte Carlo 2024 night stages. Some of the spectator banks are just bright red. It's like a pyrotechnic show. And it's so it's what makes um, rallying great. And although we didn't have a lot of the rally one entries, we still had, you know, some of the best drivers in the world going going hell for leather. You know, Thierry Nouvelle won the rally only just from Sebastian Auger and those two. You know, they're not exactly new kids on the block, are they? But the the one thing for me, once again, Pride of Britain, Elfin Evans completed the podium. So we've we've got a British driver in rallying. And Scott, you made you made a point about the cars almost getting you know, if they do that, you're almost getting to the era of group A into WRC. I don't that's definitely not a bad thing because look at how many manufacturers then turned up. Someone actually put up a, a an entry list from twenty twenty three. Monte Carlo rally and so many different cars were in the top spec WRC then and you know you had works teams from the likes of Citroen, Ford, Subaru, Skoda, Seat I think were still in at that point or they may have just ducked out at that point Um, so many cars but then you also had in the same category customers and again Paul spot on customers will always keep racing ticking because the manufacturers will come and go as they please. They'll take their toys and go and race somewhere else. So ultimately, it's the customers that are going to win. Yeah, see how easy it is for me to hijack your question about Daytona and get it onto rallying, Rob, you see? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to do with Daytona whatsoever. But as soon as you start talking about Group B and everything else, the, the pure the pure motorsport uh, and adrenaline addicts of all of us comes out, doesn't it? Absolutely. And there's there's nothing that, that, that gets the pulses racing more, I don't, I don't think, than the WRC. <laughs> Uh, just rallying in general. Um, talking about rallying, actually, we'll come back to Daytona, but talking about rallying, there was also, to me, probably some of the best news of the year is the fact that the British Rally Championship is going to be on free-to-air TV. Hallelujah. Finally. Thoughts, gents? Yeah, that that was a piece of news that made me smile this morning. I really enjoyed that. And the fact it's going to be on ITV4, in a prime time slot, it's essentially getting, in some ways, it's kind of getting BTCC treatment. Not obviously seven, eight hours worth of coverage, but it's the fact that it's going prime time and it's going to be yeah. on the same platform that British Touring Cars is and it thrives. Yeah, they've managed to put it on ITV a couple of times and it's helped. But I think the mm-hmm. fact they put it on there, they've made it happen and it shows that I think people are starting to open their eyes a bit towards rallying a bit more, which is quite, again, which is quite good. Um, yeah. I, I don't think we're quite at the level of where we were before when we used to have the old school days of. You know, when it was on the BBC and, you know, old favourite of mine when I was a kid, Top Gear Motorsport, and when you had, you know, the likes of Mark James and Tiffany Dell, and they would have the proper coverage they ran through. If you look hard enough on YouTube, you will find those kind of uh, broadcasts, and I will happily sit and watch if I can find 
I play this for the full season. I'll happily sit and watch it. Just all those full length mm. ones, about half an hour each, because just that's bags of entertainment for me. Looking back at that, um, it be so. I'd be very intrigued to see what the coverage levels like. Um, I hopefully we can get some really good sort of high level co- quality coverage. I'm, I'm sure we could do. I think there's one person that I think I'd like to see involved because he's a rally fan through and through, and I hope at least the rally still be on. He'll be stage side, and if not, I think anyone who's looking for somebody to get involved in it, uh, it's got to be Paul I'll, Woodford, surely. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, yes. I think if, it, if 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 he's not, and I speak I speak as an advocate because he's rally mad, and I see all the stuff on his yeah. social media, and he he's rightfully a massive rally fan, and I, I will give him a shout out because the stuff he did on the Roger Clark Albert Clark rally, the RAC rally absolutely sublime when he was doing his best William Willard impression in terms of throughout the days and wearing the, the old school jacket and all the courage that he did was genuinely spot on. And watching all those uh, days back of action was brilliant to indulge in. I know many people really did appreciate all the coverage that he did. And he's he's rallying through and through. He's an ex-rally driver, does, does lots of stuff for special stage. I think that, in my humble opinion, I think that the producers of that coverage, if maybe not this season, but at least in future seasons at some point, will be foolish to overlook him and not have him involved in that in some cases. I would love to see him eventually be the lead presenter or on that on that British rally coverage where possible. Because I think given his experience and how much he's done in rallying, and I'm certain that he was very happy with his news this morning, he that 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 spot is kind of made for him, in my opinion. So I think mm-hmm. he would he would absolutely relish in that. I think he'd do a stellar job compared to everything else he's done. If he hasn't at least been considered already, the producers of the coverage need to, I think personally, politely need to wake up and give give a take and give a knock on his door because he'd be fantastic. But yeah, on the whole, it it'll be good to see kind of what I haven't really kept too much up with British Rally Championship in the last couple, two or three years or recently, but. I'll be watching it with, with intrigue because I want to see the new current stars, who's coming through and who's doing what. And yeah, just expose the next generation of British and Irish rally stars to a new audience that are usually used to watching stuff on ITV4 that's British touring cars or Good Roof Festival of Speed or other kind of stuff like that. It'd be good to get, give them some proper exposure, the exposure that I think they need and deserve. And it already set things up to put, take the British Rally Championship, hopefully back into an era where it deserves to be. And clearly someone, yeah, clearly someone at um, ITV, particularly ITV4 and their programming is very pro motorsport. Mm-hmm. And you know, as Rob says, to see anything come back free to air, to, to reach sort of mass audiences and people digest stuff, not just on live TV now to be able to stream it on the various platforms and for that to become more readily available is great. And it's great to see ITV continuing to support. British motorsport in general, you know, with the way they've looked at the Tocker package with BTCC and also the full coverage of the support races. Um, so the minis and the, the Porsches and everything else. So we get to see Max on TV regularly, regularly. Uh, you know, they're really committing to British motorsport and at a time when other people are moving away from making stuff free to air terrestrially. So that's great for, for ITV to be doing that as well. Yeah, and no, I, I think that's the key, the free to air bit. That is the key because so much motorsport over the past 10 years. I mean, certainly I'm probably going to start ranting now because it's something that's an absolute bugbear. I mean, let's be honest, gents. When we all grew up, we all watched motorsport on free-to-air TV. And that's what got us hooked. That's what, you know, kids up and down the land, okay, they, you know, there's a cost-of-living crisis going on at the moment. So you've potentially got kids that don't have the same access to cable TV and, and satellites that we do. So stuff going out, on stuff like ITVX and uh, and uh, and ITV4 
is if it inspires just one one kid that just sits down in front of the TV and thinks, God, I want to do that one day. And they decide, and it's not all about the driving. We all know that. If it inspires them to go and do engineering and go and, you know, going into the engineering side of things or running a team or the business side of motorsport or even sponsorship, PR, marketing, any of that, if it inspires them to be a part of this great sport that, let's face it, it's the reason we're on this podcast. We all love things with four wheels and even two wheels. I mean, ITV brilliantly do great coverage of the isle of man yeah um you know and the, the, uh, they've shown a lot of the moto gp stuff i think they still do that they show a, a few of the live races or they may may have stopped a year or so ago so it's it's a good step forward and the good thing is i, I read a bit further into it it's not just the top boys they're going to be showing they're going to be showing all all of the classes that ra- rally in the british rally championship are going to be shown so you're going to get from the top level of British Rally Championship down to the junior category, so the 1,000 CTs classes, you know, the real grassroots sides of a national championship. And that's key. That yeah, and there's also this new uh, Stellantis Cup they're going to run as well, which is going to be for it's either if you're in a Peugeot or an Opel course, I think it is, and that's going to run as like a new junior category, like feeder category into the British Rally Championship. So that's also been a nice addition on top of that too. And I, I think it'll be... A really nice chance for people to just hopefully fall in love with rallying again. I think the response people that the Roger Albert Clark rally got this year, again, touching on that with the coverage it got, and even seeing the amount of people that lined the town and lined the streets to watch the rally cars, that just shows that people still have an appetite for this sort of thing. And they don't forget that. And maybe that would have been quite a few people that maybe would have watched, whether it was on the days of BBC or then you know, the Channel 4 days, WRC. Uh, I think it was on ITV at one point. I'm sure WRC was at one point. Um, yeah, I think it was so for a couple of seasons at least. Those, those days that, that, that like, I watched growing up in, in those days, it inspired them to kind of have a look at these cars up close and personal. And it's sometimes not an opportunity that m- many people get to see them, There's particularly when you've got a rally going through your town. And it inspires you. You surprised what one thing like that, how many people it can really truly inspire. So I hope it does. And, I hope, and this is a really positive next step to kind of. In in a in a in like a rebound for the British Rally Championship, where it was a bit in the doldrums, I think kind of two or three years ago, uh, COVID didn't help, and there was a couple of points where it was getting a bit of criticism for its promotion and its lack of kind of presence at an event. But I think they've really turned it around with some help from Motorsport UK and some new promoters. The fact that it's now got to the point where it's healthy again, it's got a good entry, it's got a good structure, and now it's got free to air coverage in a similar sort of vein, not live, but. In, in a prime time slot on the same sort of channel that houses the British Touring Car Championship, I mean that's probably the it's it, it's taking it into its healthiest era that it's been. I'm certain for a, a long, long time. Absolutely. So Daytona, Paul, should I just get back into that Paul talking to because it looks like he's got he's he's, bre- he's brewing up a very stern opinion. So I might just sit. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, great to see Porsche win, um, yeah. and the first first glimpses of what the future is going to be holding for endurance uh, and particularly with the new cars um and, and it's going to be exciting i think if you think that there's still more to come from those categories more entrants coming over the next couple of years just just seeing how that 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 series has started uh, with the strength in the depth of field and to see the new cars and everything else that's gone with it um it's pretty spectacular um, starting to get back to the heydays of endurance motorsport. Um, you know, it, it bodes well, particularly on the back of last year at Le Mans with 
people like Ferrari winning first time out and starting to see more manufacturers. We've got BMW to come and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, just the start of something very exciting, I think, for for endurance racing in all categories, you know, right across the field, um, right the way down to the GT cars as well. So, yeah, what what a great way to start the season and to get everyone sort of, you know, on the sofa, back into motorsport after what can only seem to be an eternity, but it's probably just a matter of six or eight weeks since before Christmas when the last race was. Um, and, uh, and and set the season up for the rest of the year, I think, actually, in a, in a number of different categories. And uh, it's been really interesting just to see how that's how that's played out already. Absolutely. And uh, I did notice as well, Jensen Button managed to get himself on the podium there. So he might be a wily old fox these days, but he's still got it. He got his yeah, elbow I mean, out quite a few times as well in that accurate watching some of the highlights. He wasn't afraid to properly get stuck in in his own way, which was quite good to see. Um, I think this is quite a significant result for Porsche in more ways than one, because you have to remember, I just had a look at a couple of stats, is that not only did they win, and that's the first time that Penske's won it in, I think, a few decades. Yeah. But also as well, on top of that, I think Porsche's took home four of the first six spots in Hypercar, which I think is quite a difference compared to where the the GTP category was last year when it was predominantly I think it was more Cadillac and Acura with the advantage and Porsche were kind of in the middle somewhere in third place and BMW were a bit far back it, it was actually quite pleasing to see Porsche up there looking more competitive and also BMW because at one point they were in the podium places and looking a bit quicker and they had drivers like you know I think it was I, I think it was one of the Vantors Lawrence or, or Dries Vantor and they had Rene Rast in there as well and that was a bit of benefit I think it was some experience that they had they had some incredibly strong lineups I think. And that was also a key experience for them to take forwards into WEC this year with the WRT team because they'll have been using that mileage and that data, I'm certain, to then push forwards and hopefully make the BMW a strong car in WEC this year. So we'll have to wait and see. And of course, it'll be WEC's European debut because all they've done is race in IMSA. So it'll be the first time they've raced on the world stage outside of the IMSA category, which I'll be intrigued to see. Um, but yeah, it was quite interesting. I think also the Ferrari squad did quite well. They won GTD and that had a few... Uh, Le Mans heroes from last year, so again, that would have been a good opportunity for them to get some mileage in pre-season ahead of trying to, uh, you know, try and go for the go for the WEC title in the hypercar. Good mileage, yeah. To kind of get them under their and a belt. and a Brit a Brit winning that as well. James Collado was in that car. Yeah. It's uh, James Collado, Alessandro Pierre Goudi, uh, David Rigon, and Daniel Serra. So. What, what I like about that is the fact that whether it's it, it's the Ferrari effect or the fact that hypercar's done this, etc. But there's almost a feeling like if you look within motorsport now that kind of particularly with Ferrari being involved, it's like people have just fallen in love with sports car racing again. GTs have been great in particular, but where will the manufacturers are coming in now? Where particularly this year in the top cars in WEC, for example, BMW are coming in with the WRT squad. Lamborghini have a have a single car they're going to run. Uh, I think it's a single car anyway. Uh, Alpine have two cars, and you know you've got other uh, uh, customer efforts now. More customer efforts from Porsche. Cadillac have only got one full-time car, but that is what it is with yeah. their program. And then you've got the likes of Toyota, Ferrari, and everyone else back involved. Porsche. Uh, people are just falling in love with sports car racing again, and I think it's great Absolutely. to see. And it, you know, you've, you've missed you've missed one mark, one mark that is very dear to my heart, Paul. What do you think that mark is? Boxel. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, to be fair, they were racing in it under the Chevrolet guys. Um, good old General Motors. Yeah. Um, 
But it was the in in effect, it was the Ford debut, and they yes. put some Ford. serious backing. So, um, and they've got a Brit on board for that team as well. They had Harry Tinknell. I think they finished thirty first overall. They do, uh, need to like on, they do need to work on their rear boot lid because they do come quite loo- open, quite loose. Quite easy, you know. <laughs> I thought it's it happened to one. I, I learned the happened to both cars, and I thought, hold on a minute, only like the sixty fours had it happen. But then we watched about the footage and looked at the replay and thought, oh no, Christ, it was both of them. So they both had the same. Yeah, uh, no, just, all good. All good cars have their teething problems. It's a classic Ford thing, and it mm. all. If it's a proper Ford, it'll rust before it gets going properly. <laughs> Yeah. If it's not falling off the back, it'll be a splitter falling off the front of a Focus, won't it, Rob? So you never know. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> I, will, I will say one thing, though. I think we can all be in agreement. Sounds like a Mustang should. I've heard some oh, on that. And my God, it's one of the best sounding cars of the year already. I mean, the, 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 the Caddy in prototypes is good. But the GTs, I think, at the moment, and the Porsche sounds good and a couple of others, but Ford's going to take some beating because that sounds like a it's... proper how, like a proper how a proper Ford V8 should do. That sounds. I'll tell you what it's done. I'll tell you what it's done. Uh, what was the first episode ever of the Driving Talk podcast, Paul? What were we talking about? The NASCAR at Le Mans. Yeah. So it's just taken over that job, has it not? <laughs> it has, and um, I mean, obviously Chevrolet have had the dominant kind of V8 noise in endurance racing for a long time, and it's good to see. Another V8. I mean, a personal uh, audible favourite of mine would be the uh, the V8 in the Z4 BMW, which revved really, wow. really high, and that that sounded. It wasn't necessarily the quickest, but it sounded sounded a million dollars. Um, but it, there's something about a high revving V8 in in endurance racing that sort of stirs the soul and actually can physically feel it in the chest. But it's good to see these variety of different formats, and I think that's the reason. I mean, Ford have come into that. They've obviously they're going to partner with Red Bull in Formula One. As you say, Ferrari are operating across both championships. You're starting to see more profitability in terms of franchise value in Formula One, which is creating a different perspective in different championships, enabling people to go racing and, and with confidence and not necessarily have all of their profit sort of sucked into running an F1 outfit at a loss and masking that through financial engineering or whatever it might be. So, yeah, so WEC and, uh, and, and that whole series is, as you say, people falling in love with it again. Um, and I think it's just the huge variety of different cars. Uh, it still scares the living daylights out of me, uh, sort of like the, the speed differential between some of those cars. I mean, if you remember back to Fernando Alonso a couple of years ago, cutting through the field in a prototype versus yeah. other cars. And there's, there were some big accidents last year, which took out some some front runners uh, at Le Mans at night because of the speed differential at the end of the straights. Um but yeah, fair play to everyone, and it's, it's one exciting time for for sports car racing, and, and the WEC and the European season coming ahead is going to be is really great. And I think, yeah, simple things, isn't it? Common sense, standardisation of regulations that are going to allow cars to run in IMSA as well as uh, WEC in general, and then back over into the European series. You know, why why has it taken so long to to do things that everyone else seems so simple? And it can only be healthy for everyone on the back of that. Mm. The only right. gutting thing is, there's no British round. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure most BEK are working on it on that side. Um, on that side, but just, just not to just quickly go back to the finish the point. Carry on for the point Paul was making, is that it's quite. I sort of had a had a vision myself of thinking that where GTE was and where the manufacturers are dropping backwards that eventually at some point GT3 would be a good replacement for it. And I think there was a point when people were going, 
Oh, that never happened because it's just a big conflict of interest with SRO and they're not going to get on and stuff. But crazier things can happen, and it has happened now to the point where GT3 mm. has taken over. And it's just it's it's strength in numbers. It's strength in the fact that manufacturers are going to GT3 because ultimately, let's face it, when you want a, a top-level sports car championship, whether it's customers or works teams, what do you want? You want manufacturers. You want as many of them taking part as possible because you want it to be the pinnacle of your category, of your chosen uh, you know, formula of, of motorsport. So it's working on that side. And it's good that ultimately you've got manufacturers get two slots, but it's not fully manufacturer-dominated. They're trusting the customer teams. With, they're probably giving some background support, which I think is acceptable, but they're allowing the chosen customer teams to do the job for them and go, right, we trust you with this. We're going to give you all the support that you want, but you're essentially going to be our team, our works team, in, in all but name, I'm, I'm guessing, essentially. So go out there and do the job that you need to. And I think the ones that missed out, I mean, you've got Audi who, the, the two that missed out in WEC, which are Audi and Mercedes, I can kind of see why. Audi, because they're winding down all their customer programs, all their kind of profit programs and everything, because they're piling all their resources into F1 for 2026. Uh, and I think Mercedes as well. Mercedes, yes, have got a good customer system, but I think that they're too focused on, again, most of their resources are going to be on F1. And as far as I can tell, Audi and Mercedes don't have any plans to go forward with the hypercar class, which is probably, I think, where the ACO and the FIA decided that they were going to pick their cars based on if they're currently involved. I mean, obviously, the explanation course with Lexus is there isn't yet Toyota GT3. It's in the works, but it's not currently there yet. So Lexus is the next best thing. And if you look at Ford, Ford were making noises about going into the top class for a while anyway, and given the fact that their mm -hmm. CEO, as you say, big on motorsport, and he's big on belief that motorsport will keep on getting the points. He even said one thing brilliantly, which was, you know, the it will 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 we'll never. I think they've moved, they're they're one of the first big manufacturers that are moving away from going into electric and stopping their electric production, going back into more combustible fuels, back to regular petrol and possibly even going into the hydrogen ranks, which I know a couple of other manufacturers are getting into trying to go forwards with. And I think he even said, you know, if 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 we end up being the last manufacturer that is still making petrol um, com uh, internal combusted engines and everyone else has gone to electric and other places, he said, so be it. He said, yeah. there will always be uh, like a, a Mustang, there will always be a hot version of it. So he's a firm believer of that, still of that old adage of buy on Sunday, sell on Monday. He's still a firm mm. of that. And it wouldn't surprise if he looks at the next two or three years and go, you know what, GT3's worked pretty well. We've got the engine program going on with F1. That's in Red Bull. That's working well. Wouldn't surprise if he turned around and go, fancy a piece of that top class in 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 uh, in 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 LM, LM in hypercar or LMDH. Let's go and build a let's go and build a prototype. And it wouldn't surprise me as well if McLaren didn't go that same route either. Let's face it, Zach Brown. It, it, <laughs> I did love the the fake shock. When yeah, when McLaren got another, and they went, oh, who's their team partner? Why it's United Autosport? Color me shocked. I never saw that coming. Like, but but it was. But I think, but the, but the, that's it, it. Makes obvious sense. I mean, Zach runs. It's his team essentially with Richard Dean. He runs McLaren. That was never not going to happen in the best possible way. And I can easily see that. I think it'd be when when they decide to give the hypercar cars a go. I think they will because they got the capabilities to do it. Again, it, it's a no brainer to again. Have United run that run those cars with help of the factory, basically as the factory team. And McLaren, I think McLaren will go to the hypercar class at some point. It wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if it's both Ford and McLaren are in prototypes within two years. 
I, I, I really do. I'd say maximum three. That's yeah, I mean, Ford, Ford with the Ford Performance brand, I mean, Paul, how often do I bang on about supercars? And, and they've put some serious money down under to go into the new Mustang. And, of course, we've had the issue with parity down there at the moment. But, you know, they've put serious money into that. They've put serious money into this GT3 program. They've got the new GT4 car as well. So we're going to see that's two parallels of, of GT racing. And, Scott, like you said... I, I firmly believe if they've got this F1 engine program going, what's it really going to cost Ford, which is a global brand anyway, to go, you know what, sod it, boys, get the F1 engine, tweak it a little bit, stick it in a pro- prototype, and we'll see where we go with it. Not I mean, what? it, it's, it no. speaks volumes. They, they pulled $12 billion they had set to for electrification, and this guy's just gone, nah. Because he's probably seen what the likes of Toyota and that are doing anyway. So, Yeah. It's all the manufacturers. It's Toyota. I think I saw something the other day on LinkedIn that BMW are now have managed to figure out hydrogen combustion. I think that's 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 the way forward. Because that's because I think people deep down who are petrol heads like us and stuff like that. I think we, we will always find a way to appreciate motorsport. All respect to all the tech that the, the electric cars bring, but for me, I want a car with a bit of noise. I want a the car sound with the smell. Noise the sound. And Toyota, Toyota, I think we're one of the first, if not the first one to figure out. I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong. As far as I know, Toyota were the first ones that I saw, at least with a working car, to figure out hydrogen as a combustion, as a combustible fuel. Don't ask me how it works. I'm not that not that clever, but just yeah. that's what I've worked out. I think it got to the point. I think there was one of the, I think JCB or some of those other kind of big ones have also figured out, yeah. essentially for bigger like construction machinery and for tractors yeah. and. For, and he also released a video two months ago, Scott. They got one of those engines that they tested out on the digger. They've put it in an. They've basically dragged out an 08 plate Sprinter. Mm. They've retrofitted it into this Sprinter. And I'll tell you one thing, Paul. Go on LinkedIn and uh, go in both of you. Have a look on LinkedIn at JCB when you get a chance. Lord Bamford himself is driving it as a daily. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean some other manufacturers like Honda have held off a bit on full electrification mm. um, because hydrogen seems to work. I mean synthetic fuels on mass production should significantly reduce the cost once they get the back of that we know that people like porsche are now sort of looking at alternatives to to electric um i heard about a completely different battery technology this morning as well uh which would be different to the sort of sort of lithium batteries that we've currently got i think i think the the attractiveness of something like hydrogen is that the infrastructure is there through fossil fuel petrol stations you know you just change change the tanks over i'm led to believe i'm like no expert in this and you know the infrastructure could readily be converted into that um so it definitely has attraction and i know that honda have been holding off on the back of expecting that electric vehicles are a sort of a, a global climate reduction government-led initiative uh, the industry is coming up with all sorts of innovative ways and maybe maybe full electric cars in their in their format as they currently are and uh, they're going to continue to improve and get better in their own right. Isn't going to be the only option. And if you actually look at it, the in order to run out all of the current combustion engines to replace with electric, based on global levels of production, it's going to take forty years. Mm. Yeah, just just to go through that swapping it out. So this is not an overnight fix <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. You know, to to get all of the cars off the road that are currently running on ice um, and go into electrification. 
you know, it's, it's 30 or 40 years away. So it's just they don't they can't produce enough cars to swap them all out. And secondly, is the cost is currently prohibitive for a large percentage of the market. They just can't afford 50, 60, 70,000 pound cars. I mean, I was looking for a new company car to take benefit in kind 8% advantage. Um, you know, just an X5 with a, a hybrid, £105,000. You know, nothing. It's not. there's no cheap new cars, is there? So No, there know. isn't. There's We've no cheap used cars nowadays. You can't even buy a decent yeah. banger. You, yeah, you and, and necessity is always the mother of all invention. So, you know, when we get to a point where we need answers and we're, stop, we're at that point and probably beyond that from the, from the global climate perspective, we will we will be innovative and there's no one answer to anything ever there's always a number of different answers and there's technologies that we don't even know about now that will come no. to light in 10 15 20 years time before electrification is in full flow so uh, so it's, a, it's a, an exciting innovative time both on the track and off the track in terms of the automotive industry so yeah what's yeah. this space Christ. we've we've gone deep there haven't we we've gone from the news where we've spoken about a bit of rallying 24 hour race le mans factory teams ah what's the world going to be like in about 30 years time well you know it's uh, <laughs> we like we like we like to delve deep on certain topics on the driving talk podcast powered by icon but the reason we're actually here today we're 35 minutes into the podcast scott We've had a good chat already just about motorsport. And what the one thing it showed is clearly, I mean, I know this having worked with you and been lucky enough to work with you, your passion for motorsport knows no bounds. It's, it's, it runs through your veins. You live and breathe it. Um, your day job is working with the BRSCC. Um, so you literally work within motorsport every day. So let's take it back. When was the first time you got into in touch with motorsport? Well, you're taking me back now. Uh, I, for me, it already started, I think, from the tender age of, believe it or not, I think effectively, back in 1992. Um, and this is before my second birthday. So literally, I think I first got some kind of exposure to it when I was, when I was one. Um, to give a bit of a background on b- before I was born, so my... So my dad, uh, to give a kind of roundabout kind of where he of his story... So when he was young, he immigrated out to South Africa, was educated there. Then for a while, he moved out to Australia and then came back in about roughly, I think it was the early 80s. So he only came back on the premise that he could go and do what was then, I think it must have existed somewhere, but what was then the, the Jim Russell Racing School at Sneston. So he went there, he was an instructor there. He he was uh, got to the point where he was quite good, did a few more years there. He... He eventually found himself going into Formula Fords for a bit. I think he even did a little bit of testing, loose occasional testing at Sneston for Van Diemen, I think. And then he started doing Formula Fords at what was then the champion of Sneston. I think he was at least champion of it in 88. And he also went and did the Formula Ford Festival twice, which was uh, a slight claim to fame in some cases. Um, 87... The, the hard facts that were he got all the way to the final on his first go. Wasn't he meant to, he wasn't even meant to be racing because the guy who was meant to be racing got ill and he happened to be there with his race kit anyway, just in case. He was going to be there at Brands Hatch purely just to just to be like a driver coach. But he he'd never mm. driven Brands Hatch. He had, I don't think he'd been to Brands Hatch before, so he'd never driven, never gone round. So the the, the the short version of that of the story is he went round in practice, followed the followed a quick guy until he was up on his pace, then dropped off, found a faster guy, found a faster guy. Didn't want to know his times. 
He then gets to the knockouts where there was more cars than we have in the festival. Festival's still popular today, but it's not. There's, there's many more cars. This is still in quite the, the peak of Formula Ford in the late 80s going towards the early 90s. So you had like 140, 160 plus entries at that time, all trying to get through eight heats and then quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. Makes it through his heat, makes it through his quarterfinal, makes it to the semifinal, and he finds himself at the back of the grid for the 87 festival final. And this is on the same grid as people as, he's about like 24th of 26 cars on the grid. At the front, you've got names like Eddie Irvine had gone to win it, Thomas Mazzera, who Rob will know from the Australian days. Oh, Thomas Mazzera, bloody yeah, Thomas hell. Um, there was Alan McNish, there was Alan Menu, I think Pedro Chavez is on there, a couple of other different drivers in the mix on that that, that point. And I think he told me he got as high as about sort of mid-pack in the first five laps, and then he hit a bump going through 30, lost it, and backed it into the tyres. He was okay, and he sort of claimed to fame. He won't thank me for this, but if you look on, there is footage of the 87 final, and he does. there is a small little camera shot showing him getting out of his car, and Tiffany Dell does even give him, give him a mention on the commentary saying that he's out of the race. So that was his small little five seconds of fame on that coverage. And then he did the festival again in 88, and I think he was in a, in a position to uh, go through, to not win, uh, to, to win the, to go through to the final in the semi, and then I think right towards the end, in the last couple of laps, his engine went, and he wasn't too best pleased about it. Um, and then, so that kind of, so racing was always in my history in terms of stuff that I'd done before. And I think when my dad had gone to South Africa, he'd been to Kyle Army a few times and kept up to date with stuff. And been there. I don't know if he'd been to any Grand Prix, but, and then he met my mum. They had me in 1990 uh, and he was in the motor trade by then. He was working for Nissan and then for Ford for a while. He worked for, uh, Dayu. Remember Dayu for a while? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is. Uh, so I got taken to school in the the Joyce Laganza and the Nubira, and kind of, which were, which were all just they all just rebodied and rebadged chassis like Astros. Astros and Cavaliers and stuff, and just got rebadged. But to be fair, for what you got from them, they weren't too bad cars. And there was the little tiny little Matiz that they um, that they also brought together. And the, before that, there was there was there was there was the, there was the, the de- oh there was the Lanos, and there was the mm. there was the I'm telling you the full history of Dayu cars now. Um, the Lanos, and before that was the Espero, and there was the what was the hatchback that was based on the Vauxhall Astra? I'm sure tr- I'm trying to remember myself because I think it. my grandma, uh, my grandma had but the Demio. No, 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 that no? Mazda. But the funny thing was, I mean, the reason why I remember that car particularly is because at one point it was raced in the Andros Trophy. That that's so much an anorak I am is that I can figure these things out, and it's these little things stick and remember. Someone raced the day you. What was the name of the down? It'll come to me at some point. I'm sure it will. There'll be a point literally where I'll just shout the name midway through this podcast. So, for all intents and purposes, you're a Vauxhall man. <laughs> uh, I, on, 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 on the contrary, if you're going to ask me where my allegiance lies, I don't say it's because Rob's in the room here, but genuinely, I am. I do have a, a very big soft spot for fast boards. I am a fast yeah. board man. Uh, Escort Cosworth RS200. All the Focus RSs, maybe not the five-cylinder one. I wasn't so keen on that one, um, and some other stuff. But yeah, for me, it's like for me the two big ones for me in terms of fast forwards: RS two hundred and the RS Escort RS cars. Oh, and the Sierra RS five hundred. Those are the three for me. Mm. Um, anyway, back to me. So yeah, and then where it all started for me was that's the thing you learn about me is that I'll go off on tangents and then I'll eventually I'll eventually come back. Just bear with me. <laughs> uh, eventually, emphasis on that word, um, and then. I think where it was, I don't remember receiving it, but I've still got it somewhere. Still got it. It was a sign. You know those promo postcard pictures that that, that they used to either you could 
ask for and they would give them out and it's still they still do it motorsport and btcc or british gt wherever you go so i think my dad managed to get a signed sort of promo picture postcard thing of uh nigel mansell he signed it uh and that covers kind of i think where that kind of was one of the things that kind of set that off and then just from there my dad was still in the motor trade but i would just as a kid i had as any kid does, tons of toy cars. So I just sit there and play and make grids and stuff and race them around the living room. Um, and then I used to watch, usually if I wasn't watching something like cartoons on TV or something, I'd watch motorsport videotapes and it would be just 90s F1 seasons. It would be Le Mans. It would be all those crash compilations like And They Walked Away and stuff and all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the whole ones that they did. In the days when there was no social media and like vlogging and stuff, there was when Nigel Mansell did that documentary series where he had the film crew yeah. following him around for like three or four seasons. He 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 was the most he was like a a motorsport influencer before the term motorsport influencer ever came along because he kind of had to follow him around and kind of document his entire season. It's like no other F one driver did that. It's like and that was no. unique in that sense. So that was inspired, and he was he's always been one of my heroes, Nigel Mansell. Um, yeah, and then obviously, then once video games came along, that was when I made a beeline for all the racing stuff, and that was from from there. I, I always wanted to race, and I, I firmly believe I will race one day at some point. But I think as a kid, I wasn't the most athletic, shall we say, and we never really had the money and the opportunity to do it, so I never got into that. And then I thought, well, maybe I could be like an engineer or a mechanic of some kind. But then I forgot that A level maths goes straight over my head, so forgot mm-hmm. that. So that, and then I saw came up with the adage that the legend, the you know, the, the the late great Murray Walker said, which is that those that can do it and those that can't talk about it. And I thought, well, I can't do it at the moment, so I may as well have a go at talking about it. And mm. here we are now. You move. Sorry, Paul. Were you going to cut it? Were you going to say something there? Day of next year. That That's it. it next the year. next year. Well done, yes, that man. My, Day next so my year. grandma, my grandma had the saloon version. She didn't have the hatchback. She had the saloon version. And I can remember doing one road trip in it uh, with my sister. We always used to go and spend a week with her when we were kids. And I think in one road trip, she lost all four of her hubcaps. It was, it was epic. Such good, <laughs> such good build quality as well. You know, just good old, you, you know, when like General Motors tone it down to get to a day, you know, it's going to be a bad car anyway. Yeah. But alas, all, all, all of our days. I only think if she'd have known that, automotive recycler that could have replaced her hubcaps at minimal cost and better for the environment, Rob. Absolutely. What, one like Silver Lake, you know? <laughs> I've got I've got to get that work plug in there as well. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, I, I must have been about seven at the time. I just remember getting out and going, Grandma, what, why has all the hubcaps gone from your car? She, literally, in what, she was just like, oh, wow. So yeah. in, in her Essex twang, you know, Essex girl growing up, she's like, well, so they are. And yeah, that's, that's cable tie around the around a hubcap on a steering was all the thing to stop them flying off up the A12 if it was if it's Essex based. All that, absolutely. The, the, the last thing I saw on Dayu is just to save your eyes. Two things: don't 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 search Dayu Takuma. Don't search Dayu Muso. If you want to save your eyes, don't look at them honestly because they weren't to the most <laughs> oh, horrific, car horrific cars. They, they, absolutely they, they horrific um, cars. And, and, and there's a, this is a very side note before we go into more stuff about motorsport. But very side note: this is how. Deus kept on following us, right? So we went to uh, first time I went to the US. I just remember this actually. We talk about days. So obviously my dad was still working for day at the time, 
and none of this was planned. None of this was. This is all genuine coincidence, right? We go. To, we got. We went to the car rental place. And said, right, got your rental car. Of all the cars that we get given as a rental car, Deu Lanos in white. And I was thinking, <laughs> in America, <laughs> how does this happen, right? And, and the ironic thing is, we got to the, we, the when we finished the holiday, we got back to the. Uh, we got back to the rental place as we're turning in. Someone, someone crashed into us. But, but, but thankfully, it happened. It happened essentially whilst we were technically on the car rental property, so we were there for a little bit. And as soon as we figured it's on the rental properties company, it's their problem. You can only go, go, go and get your flight. We thought we were going to miss it, but thankfully, we managed to get going and we were fine. Um, but yeah, I just thought you know we, we we were technically sort of around days and see them all the time. I think we had two cars. We had a, we had a um, like like a mint green or turquoise like metallic Lanos in the driver. My mum used to drive that for a bit, and then my dad would either have either for a while we had this like British racing green Nubira, and then there was also like a like a red Laganza on top of that as well. We had a whenever there was a Matiz, it was usually like that same British almost British racing green. Um, yeah, they they were in their own way charming little cars. They but um, obviously became Chevrolet and whatever they've gone on to now, but. Yeah, that's that. And we've got, we definitely need some older guests on here, Rob, because I mean, you're talking about sort of being born in 1990, and I was already driving by then. <laughs> yeah. uh, to be fair, Paul, I'm going to make you feel really old. I was born in 1991, so. Yeah, he's got, he's got a year on me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to think age and wisdom and experience are combined, Rob. But uh, absolutely. You know, well, we'll continue and let you two embryos crack on with uh, the rest of Scott's <laughs> career. Never call that. Before. Well, well, Scott, <laughs> uh, let's let's carry on with your career, shall we? So, mm. when was the first opportunity for you to do some talking? Uh, I kind of produced it myself in a way, really. So, it essentially, came towards the end of 2011 where I kind of discovered that maybe getting into commentating could be something. And where it came from, ironically, the first thing I ever commentated on was not a property officially, but I did it really just for fun. For those who remember, take you back now. Those who remember the PS2 game, uh, the, the the official F1 game, Formula One 2001, yeah, that had a TV mode where you could set your grid. I was that kid that literally set the grid and then just set the TV one away and then just started commentating on those races like to the TV just out loud because I felt like it. Um, just 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 on a whim, I didn't even think about it as a career or anything. I just sat there and talked. And then it got towards the end of 2011, and there was a competition that. Autosport show were putting on, and it was to, for someone to submit people to submit clips of them commentating, and whoever won it could then go do some stuff in the live action arena. So I thought, okay, and I looked at it. I didn't end up entering because I thought it was either too late, or I thought, well, I don't know how I can get clips to record myself doing anything. I didn't really have the, the, the tech at the time. But the guy that won it, um, he doesn't do anything in motorsport nowadays anymore, I don't think. He does more stuff for general kind of sports in Philadelphia, and, and quite well, actually, for, for, in, in his own way. It was a, a guy called Liam Jenkins, and he used to do lots of sim racing stuff, and he won it, and he still did sim racing for a little bit, and then he's now kind of moved into... He created something called Philly Sports Network, uh, which I think he actually got sold... He actually then got bought by a, uh, some kind of media company, and fair play to him, he built it up on his, up his own back, and he did a, what I saw, a phenomenal job, so fair play to him. Um, and he was commentating at the time, and this is a very different time when esports and sim racing was almost a little bit in its infancy, uh, particularly not online stuff. And if you looked at the landscape back then, this is going into 2012, there's only really kind of two or three sort of big leagues that existed. There was there was Formula Sim Racing, which still exists, and Grand Prix Virtual World Championship, which still exists. 
But if you look at where it is now, the big ones, obviously, well, up until things went a bit pear-shaped this year, it's, it was essentially F1 esports. That's the pinnacle now. But back then, it was all mm. stuff on R Factor, pretty much. That was the, the main sim that you went on. And kind of online play was in a different place in that sense. In terms, of, yes, there was F1 games, but if you wanted the proper like more sim experience, you went to R Factor and you went to the mods that they created. So I sort of thought, okay, well, how do I get into this? Um, so I even reached out to Liam. I said, look, because he was doing some stuff for Formula Sim Racing at the time, and I said, how do I get into this? How do I possibly have a go at this? And he said, well, there's two leagues. There's there's FSR as it was called to abbreviate it, and GPBWC. And I saw FSR was like what F1 Esports is today, I looked at it and thought, well, that's like the pinnacle. So, I mean, for me to aim for that immediately straight away when I've done no conflict experience whatsoever, I'd be foolish to do that. So, I said, went, okay, well, let's try GPBWC because I didn't see it as having, a, in a nice way, as, as it wasn't as high a profile as FSR. It's still getting up there now and does still well. You look at where it is now, it's quite different. So, and I think they were by chance looking on the website saying they were still looking for, for commentators. I think it was like a year round thing. They were sort of advertising for anyone that wants to get involved. So I spoke to, got in touch with a guy who runs it, a guy called Will Panisi, who I think he's still currently, last time I checked, I think he's still involved in with the Alfa Romeo team in terms of their media side. He's done in F1, which now stake, of course, and it will go through to Audi, depending on if he sticks around or does something mm-hmm. else. But he was, he was the guy who created essentially GPWC and ran it. So I, I got in touch with him and said, look, is there any way I could help out in some conversation? And he went, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to have any previous experience. You can come and do it. This commentary is still on YouTube to this day. And it was the first commentary I ever did of any kind, live commentary. And it was uh, GPPWC. And it was their kind of their equivalent of like Formula 3 or like GP3. They were using a mod of, from of, of, for Formula BMW cars. They called it Formula Challenge. And the f- first one I ever did was... They're opening rounds at Brands Hatch. This was about April 2012, and it was me and a couple of other guys in the box. And just I just talked and did that, did a couple more. I then got a chance to do a couple of the top level, which is like the Super League, which is their version of F1. That went quite well. And then I think Liam got in touch and asked if, he, if I'd be able to help him in one of the, one of the sub-series, like the, the feeder series going up in for FSR, which is the World Series. So he asked me to do that. And that was, I think, Sepang had a go on that. And then this is when it was all run through race department. I think it, in a way, I think it still is, but I don't know what the setup with FSR is at the moment. But it was mainly, their main forms they used was F, was race department. And I got uh, an email from the guy who was looking after, I think, that the, the admin for the league or something else. And he simply said, he said, I, for someone who has never, I've never come across before, I said, I thought, I thought you, you, in his words, your commentary was, was, was fantastic. I said, and he then said to me, would you be interested in doing some stuff for the World Championship? And that was for me, like, thinking someone's hit the pin. That was for me now. If someone asked me now, do you want to do some stuff for F1 Esports? And at the time, sort of like, you know, 21-year-old me was like, I can't believe this. This is like literally like the pinnacle of stuff I'm being asked to do it. And so I did do some stuff on and off throughout 2012, 2013 uh, on sim racing stuff. But then I, as I was doing it and I was enjoying it, I was thinking to myself, Maybe there's a way I can do this for real. I can do some stuff like in the real world. And that concludes this episode of the Driving Talk podcast. Don't forget, we've got part two coming up with Scott Woodwish. So you've just listened to part one. Part two comes out in a couple of days' time where Scott Woodwish will be talking about his relationship with the late, great Brian Jones, a stalwart of commentary at Brands Hatch. 
what he wants to do in the future, and just what are some of his favourite commentary moments. Join us then, the Driving Talk podcast, powered by Icon.